Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Father, we say that so glibly, I tell the children, open your hearts. You know, I know, the devil knows, all of us know how hard to open a heart it is. Our hearts get locked down. Our hearts are so busy trying to keep the important things locked in, things we cherish, things we care about, things we don't want to forget, things that seem to be important, that we, we seldom open them up to let new stuff in. So, Father, it's not so easy when we say, open your heart to the Word of God. It takes the ability of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God to enable us to do that. So, Father, help us right now to open our hearts and our minds to understand what you've recorded for us and have preserved for us all these years. And we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd just like to say as we begin that conversion to Christ is a truly remarkable thing. Amen? Have any of you been converted? Well, good, good. Anybody, you know somebody not in this room this morning who's been converted? Have you seen it happen in their life? Is it not an amazing thing, a remarkable thing? Conversion, when we use that term, it's the spiritual process by which a fallen, flesh-controlled human being surrenders his or her life to Jesus Christ. The process through which that person is granted forgiveness of sins and given eternal life. Spiritual birth, Jesus called it. Now, some conversions are completely expected. That is, as when children reared in a Christian home accept Christ as their Savior. However, other conversions are completely unexpected, as when a hardcore sinner or some outspoken opponent of the Christian faith gives his or her life to Jesus Christ. Those unexpected ones, I won't ask you if you've ever seen a totally unexpected conversion, because if you raised your hand, it might turn out that the very conversion you're thinking of is sitting next to you. So I won't ask you that question. However, those unexpected conversions, when they happen, might cause a person to say or to think something like this, I never ever saw that coming. He or she is absolutely the last person that I ever expected to find singing praises to God in my church with me. I'm actually having a hard time believing it and accepting it. Today's key scriptures tell us the story of just such an unexpected conversion. In fact, I'm calling it the world's most surprising conversion. Now, the story of this most surprising conversion is told in today's key scriptures. We have several of them, and I'm going to read them one right after another. You uh, will have them on the sheet. You have, I didn't ask. You got your Bible? Because today we're using it. Let's turn to the book of Acts if it's not just falling open there automatically now. And you follow along as I read. Or just uh, let the words soak into your heart. You'll see them on the screen as well, I believe. But here's the first one. Acts 8, 3. Chapter 8, verse 3. We've covered this several times. It's such a key 
concept, key truth, as we're going through this period of the development of the church in the first century. Here it is, Acts 8.3, you'll recognize it. But Saul, that man who stood right beside Stephen when the angry mob was stoning him to death, that man who stood there approving, we saw last week, of this execution, after it was over, the writer says, but Saul began to destroy the church. That is, he began to try to do everything he could to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Going from house to house. That would, this would first be in the city of Jerusalem. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. The story continues in the ninth chapter. Luke, the writer, takes up all the rest of chapter 8 to tell us that marvelous ministry of Philip, how God used him. And when the people were scattered, Philip just went right after them, preaching the good word, and and God did miraculous things with him. And then, at the beginning of chapter 9, Luke, the writer, brings us back to the Saul story. And so here we are, as we read it now, the more extended passage of the morning. Let it capture your imagination. If you need to, if it would be helpful as I read it, just picture what it's saying here most vividly. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Meanwhile, that means while Philip was doing the things he was doing that Luke just told us about in chapter 8. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. His His anger at Christ, his anger at the church was in no way satiated by the fact they killed one guy, one outspoken leader of the church, Stephen. No, no, he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, 120 miles away, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. Those with him led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Freaked out is what he was. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him, to restore his sight. Ananias replied, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. Do you believe they were trembling a little? (laughs) Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Now they were both Jews, so that applied, but uh, Brother Saul, the Lord, That is, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled by the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. What an account. That's Luke telling us how it happened. Right now, we're going to read another little passage, and I want you to hear now Saul's own testimony as he shared it with some of his own people who had heard of his conversion, and these people wanted to do to him the same things that they had done to Stephen. It's like, boy, if this is true, Saul, you deserve to die. If this is true, you've turned away from the true faith, just like Stephen turned away from the true faith. And so Paul's talking to some angry, angry Jewish people who actually wanted to kill him. Now, by this time, a lot of years have passed, by this time, our most surprising convert was going by the name Paul. Paul shared these words with them to prove that what he had one time been, what he was, that he at one time was and had been exactly what they still are. And so we find it all the way almost to the end of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 22, as I said, years have gone by. Paul was back in Jerusalem and these people had captured him. And I mean, they were ready to just pummel him. And he finally got their attention. We'll just read the first five verses. He says, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Actually, the Roman soldiers had formed a little guard around Paul so that a Roman citizen wasn't just beat to death by these angry Jews. And they're hauling him into a safe place. And Paul stops there, turns to face the crowd, says, can I address them? And this is how he begins. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. It says, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, which was the the local language of the day, what Jesus spoke and what everybody spoke. It wasn't Latin, it wasn't Greek, it wasn't something fancy. It was just their everyday language. And it's like, he's one of us. Okay, well, listen to this. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, and this reveals to us a little more information about Saul who he was and how he felt back there in the beginning. This is now Paul sharing the testimony of those early days. He says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. That's Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel. He was the highest and the smartest and the, the, the top of the heap of Jewish teachers. Paul said, I studied under him. And I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. That's the law of Moses. It goes all the way back to the very writing of the books of Moses. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. It's the only place in the Bible where Paul kind of admits some of the persecution led to people dying. Not just Stephen being stoned, but Paul says, I persecute these people. All the way to their death, some of them. Arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council here in Jerusalem can themselves testify. They would have to say, that's right. That's right. Paul was working for us. He says then, I even obtained letters from them. That would be the chief priests and the leaders in Jerusalem. I even obtained letters from them to their associates, that's the fellow priests, rabbis, in Damascus. I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He's saying, fellas... All the anger you have, I had. All the hatred for Christ you had, I had. All the desire to wipe the earth of these followers of Jesus Christ, I had. And I acted upon it. You can ask these men here. They know, they know. That's where I started. That's what made Saul such an incredibly surprising convert. 
Now those scriptures, that's the key information that we're going to roll together, examine, discuss, and try to draw some insights from this morning. As you can see, it came both from Luke's carefully written account, and it also comes from the Apostle's, Apostle Paul's personal statement made many, many years later. And so here's today's first key question. How do we characterize this man, Saul? A few, years, a few weeks ago, we looked at Stephen. We said, how do we characterize this man? And we gave, I think, nine characteristics. Oh, godly man, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And, and we've had people in our church and in our cell groups look through those nine characteristics and say, any one of us. If we could be characterized by any of them, let alone all nine, this is what a godly man truly is. Well, this morning I want you to see what a, what a persecutor of the church, when we pull it all together, all of the characteristics that made up this man Saul in the beginning. I find six of them there. All of them are relevant to the story, so we're going to include them all. Number one, without question, Saul was a most accomplished man. Have you ever noticed how many smart people fight Christ? How many wealthy people want nothing to do with the church? Paul was a very accomplished man. He was highly educated. In fact, in the passage we read, he pointed out he was taught by the venerable Jewish teacher Gamaliel himself in the highest school of the land under the greatest Jewish teacher himself. Paul mastered this faith of the Jews. He was a Pharisee, we have been told in the other passage. He was a high-ranking member of the Jews' most devout religious order. Nobody was more godly than the Pharisees. Nobody believed the scripture more firmly than the Pharisees. Nobody more wanted to live a life that God the Father would say, well done, than the Pharisees. And Paul was at the top of the heap of them. He's a most accomplished man by all the standards that the Jewish people would put out there. Secondly, though, we see Saul was a judgmental man. He condemned his fellow Jews. Some of the people that he went to Sabbath school with. Some of the people that were probably in the same class under Gamaliel that he was uh, in. People that he loved, people with the same DNA, people who went all the way back to, to Moses, at least to Abraham, just like he did. Jews, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, kind of thing. And yet, these Jews had followed after Jesus Christ, and as a result, he condemned them. No doubt many former friends of his. He condemned them for the belief in Christ. He didn't say, let's talk about this. He made a judgment. He was sure. He was that kind of a hot-tempered, sure-going, confident, cocky individual. And he found these people deserving of imprisonment and even death. Saul was a judgmental man. You didn't want to get on his wrong side. You didn't want to express any opinion in front of him until you already knew what his opinion was. He could cut you down and cut you off. And he had a high rank and so he could do you in. Saul, follows right along with this, was an angry, even a hateful man. What kind of man can comfortably stand by while a bloodthirsty mob... Now, those men were all stoked up with hatred and anger and almost out of control. They're throwing stones and killing this man, stoning him to death. But here's a guy who's just standing there. He's not so mad and so out of control that he has to pick up a rock himself and be part of it. He's just standing there approving it. He's the guy saying, well done. That scum deserves to die. 
I'm happy he's dying. Hit him again. Don't let him, don't kill him too quickly. These people ought to suffer. He stood comfortably there during the brutal stoning of Stephen. And whatever emotion was within him, he was just more than happy that it was happening. So we say he was angry, even hateful. Luke tells us at the beginning of chapter 9 that Paul was, Saul was expressing, breathing out murderous threats. Now we see his own emotion. Breathing out murderous threats. What do you think he would say when he finally got to your front door? He was breathing out those threats when he headed on his way. When he finally got to somebody's house and had people to break it down and come in and grab you by the throat, what do you suppose a guy like that is saying to you? Well, whatever we could imagine, Saul, I'm sure, was articulating it. He was an accomplished man, and he used all his brain power to make judgments on everybody. And when he found people who were falling short, he allowed himself to be impassionedly uh, angry at them with the how dare you and just hate the fact that anybody would turn on their ancient faith the way these people are. Then, number four, this all fits in, he was a driven man. He just didn't sit in his living room and hate. He put it into action. We're told he personally tracked down the believers wherever they went. He pursued them, even to foreign cities. As I've told you, Damascus was 120 miles away. How many days it took, who knows, but probably all along the way, every little town there was. He went into the synagogue to see if there's any of these Christians there. Took him to the he would go to the ends of the earth to accomplish this great work for God. He was a driven man. And he was, as we could know, he was a feared man. Did, did you check out what Ananias said to Jesus? I know, Lord, I can understand the words you're saying. And I understand you are the Lord... But uh, there's a certain something in me that is welling up and, and it would give me enough courage to actually question you. And the only thing that would give me enough courage to question the exalted Lord Jesus Christ is just terror and fear. Saul... Go talk to Saul. Go in the same room. Go where Saul is when I know Saul is here to find me and all the rest of us. Lord, fear. Who wouldn't fear somebody like Saul? Surely the disciples remaining in Jerusalem lived in fear of him. They were hiding anywhere they could hide. And Ananias... He just says, I've heard. I've heard about this man. Are you sure you got the right one? You know, Saul's a common name. And Jesus says, go. Go do what I told you to do. So that's, that's Saul. He's an accomplished man, a brilliant man. He was a judgmental man, to say the least. He was angry and most likely even a, a most hateful man. And he was a driven man, type A type personality. And he, of course, was a feared man because what he was driven to do would strike terror into the hearts of those he was coming to do it to. Not a very nice man. Not a man that anybody would seek out to just be friends with. He's the kind of guy that you would say, do you think anybody can actually be friends with him? He doesn't give himself to anybody. He's evaluating everybody. And he may seem to be getting along with you one day, but you take one step out of line and he'll cut you off at the knees. This is not a nice man. 
Somebody might say even, even God couldn't use a man like that. Okay, today's, here's our initial conclusion in this message. Saul was the first century's most unlikely and therefore most surprising convert. Would you agree? Can you think of anybody in the New Testament who comes to Christ that would surprise you more than this one? Or be less likely than this one? But he did come to Christ. Christ came to him and he surrendered to him. He recognized the one in front of me that there's qualities of, of divinity about him. How do I withstand that? He bowed the knee. He came to Christ. So now my question would be, second key question this morning, what does Saul's conversion demonstrate? And might his conversion tell us something about every conversion? About your own conversion? We might even rethink the commitment we made to Jesus Christ and how many of these uh, five uh, demonstrations were worked out when we surrendered our life to Jesus Christ. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, let me say, if you ever do, these five things will be part of that process. Well, here's the first one. All of these are awesome demonstrations. Number one, Saul's conversion demonstrated God's power. Acts 22.6, when Saul was giving his own, telling his own story, he said, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. A great light. Some of, the, some of the English translations say, a light brighter than the noonday sun. Brighter than staring right at the sun like we're told from the time we're in first grade never to do. This was something brighter, lighter. I just watched the movie Linda and I did a few months ago, Oppenheimer. They had no idea what they were going to see when that first test explosion went off. They were five miles away. They had glasses on that were the darkest at the time they could have. And, and it was just beyond anything anybody could imagine. And of course, the force from the blast just knocked everything down. Well, Paul, this light he saw, it stopped him dead in his tracks. It did knock him to the ground. It blinded him. And there's a couple of suggestions that I, I found around that it would suggest to me that it very likely nearly deafened him as well. This was surely no still, small voice that he heard. There was a time when God spoke from heaven to Jesus Christ and, uh, and the people around couldn't make out the voice, but they just said it sounded like thunder. It sounded like thunder. I think Paul got the, the full shot. He got a light brighter probably than a nuclear explosion, though they didn't have the terminology then. And he probably heard a voice that there was no, there was no missing. This is the voice of God Almighty talking to me. And it probably affected his hearing for the rest of his life. The resurrected, glorified, and exalted Jesus appeared to him, and Saul could not deny the power of it. And so he says, who are you, Lord? Hey, guy in the sky. No. You're in the presence of something mighty, infinite. You're in the presence of something overwhelmingly awesome. You're in the presence that his Pharisee mind would go back to Moses on the mountaintop where it thundered and, and the people said, you go talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. It thundered and lightning and Moses is up there for 40 days taking on that, that kind of barrage. A guy who knew the scriptures he didn't have to think too long to say this. <laughs> this is the mighty God. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Lord, who are you? 
Never did he suspect the answer would be, I am Jesus. You know, the guy whose group you're hunting down like animals? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's who. The power of God was just all around him. And of course, as we read, he felt the effects for at least three days physically. He was blind. He couldn't or wouldn't eat or drink for those whole three days. He was struck in a in a powerful way, made it almost immobile and unable. He had to be helped into the city. His conversion happened with a display of God's power. But secondly, I want you to see this. Saul's conversion demonstrated God's grace. Years later, Paul, the apostle, would write to his disciple Timothy these words. He would say, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5.15, I, 1.15, he said, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. When Paul wrote those words years later to Timothy, he was not speaking casually. He was certainly not speaking flippantly. Like some wise guy might say, or you might at times say, man, there's nobody better than me. Just some sort of, I'm a pretty... No, I am the chief of sinners. He truly understood that when God's grace was given to him, it was given to one of his own beloved son's greatest enemies. Oh, what grace is that? How does grace extend that far? An enemy of my own beloved son. It's one thing to kind of cut your personal enemies a little slack. At least the moms in this room know. Pick on my kids and what? (laughs) This is an enemy of the beloved son. As God would say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And this is the greatest enemy that he and his ministry in this world have. And the father is expressing grace. And the son is right there passing it along. But you see, Saul, Saul had persecuted. He had, he had sought to destroy the very church that Jesus was building and to arrest and imprison the very ones for whom Christ had died. Why, the devil himself fought no harder or more passionately against those. And yet, God graciously forgave Saul and saved him. Oh, Paul would have loved the song that we Americans have held dear for so long. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. Old-fashioned word. If you ever want to really put somebody down and yet them not know you're putting them down, say, boy, you are a wretch. Well, thank you. (laughs) That saved a wretch like me. Paul said that. There are no wretches like me. I am the wretchiest of them all. The most wretched. So it's a demonstration of grace. It's a demonstration of God's grace. Saul's conversion. Third thing, moving along here. Saul's conversion demonstrated God's wisdom. The Apostle Peter, when he wrote to the church in his second letter... Chapter 3, verse 15, Peter wrote these words. He says, our beloved brother Paul. This is at the end here. This is years have gone by. The apostle Paul is is well known. He's writing letters to the churches. And Peter says, our beloved Paul, beloved brother Paul, wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Let me just say this. This might be my own personal opinion, but I think a lot of people would agree with me. No other human mind has ever dealt with the wondrous truths of our salvation 
as, had, as has this surprising convert. The words brought by the Spirit through him have explained and established the unchanging doctrines of our Christian faith. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, 13 of them have flowed from the amazing mind of the Apostle Paul. Let's just take a second. What's your favorite book Paul wrote? Just speak it out. Ephesians. Ephesians. Any others? Could I point out at somebody and say, could you stand up and, re- and, and give me the whole list of 27 that he wrote? <laughs> no, we wouldn't want to do that, would we? Or 13 that he wrote, excuse me. 27 in the New Testament. He just wrote and he wrote. And even Peter would say, and sometimes they're words that are hard to understand. He was brilliant beyond the average. It takes God's grace to read the letters of Paul and have them come alive to you. It takes the Holy Spirit illuminating them. But what a mind, what a mind. He knew the Old Testament so thoroughly that he could see completely how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it. And what salvation through faith means. And what Jesus being our sacrifice means. We never have to bring any other sacrifice. Jesus brought himself to God as a sacrifice. And Paul writes and he writes and he writes. And they're they're glorious books. Romans is my favorite. Romans. Oh, what an incredibly wise choice our God did make. Fourth thing, Saul's conversion demonstrated God's ingenuity. I just love that word. Sometimes God does things that can really fool you, can really surprise you. You could say, man, I would have never thought of that. And the way God worked it out, I mean, it was slick. Ingenuity, creativity. The unusual way to get a thing done. Well, I'm saying choosing Saul, converting Saul, demonstrated God's ingenuity. And here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, it's reported that the believers in the churches were saying this. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Who would believe that? Why would God even do that? Who else would come up with such a plan to turn the primary persecutor of Christ's church into the primary proclaimer in Christ's church? Who else could see what Saul would become once he was under the Spirit's control? Only God. Only God could see that, know that. Who else would possess a testimony so profound and so, and a life change that is so dramatic, you could tell the story again and again and again. And then think of this. Who else would suffer anything comparable to the suffering of this one? Of this one who had created so much suffering for others. I'm sure that every time Paul was stoned, and he was stoned several times, just never killed. Three times, I believe. I'm sure that every time Paul was stoned or beaten or hungry or adrift in the open sea that he says he was several times, there was a part of him that viewed that as payback as payback for all the pain and suffering that he had caused Christ's own. You see, God saved Paul from ever wondering, why do I have it so good when I have myself brought so much bad to others? Jesus had said to our... uh, Ananias, excuse me. Jesus had said right directly to Ananias. He said, I will show him how much he will suffer for my sake. Which seems to be a strange line to have in that uh, he's my chosen instrument and this and that. And I will show him how much he will suffer for my sake. 
And all that suffering meant the world to Paul. Even as the father knew that. Paul would in fact testify in his letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. He says, I want to know him. Jesus Christ. Every believer would say that. But now Paul adds to that. I want to know him. And I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And he did. No follower of Jesus recorded in the New Testament suffered like Paul. Again and again and again and again. And he said, oh, it draws me close to Christ. I want to be drawn close to Christ. And certainly there had to be a feeling after all I put others through, how can I walk an easy path? God's ingenuity to take a man who had caused great suffering and allow him to suffer greatly in the service of Jesus Christ. Fifth thing, with this we're done. Saul's conversion demonstrated God's authority. Right off the bat, Jesus said to Ananias, he is a chosen vessel of mine. I choose. He doesn't choose. He is a chosen vessel of mine. And Saul would later say before the king, King Agrippa, at the end of the book of Acts, pretty close, he says, as he's telling his story to the king, he says, and O king, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. You see, Jesus chose Paul. He is my chosen instrument. Paul merely acknowledged that undeniable fact. And I'll tell you, there can be no true conversion. Now listen to this. There can be no true conversion without the awareness that you have put yourself under the absolute authority of God. Saul surely did. He met his Lord on the Damascus Road. He testified to the king of the Jews. As I mentioned, I was not disobedient. When God speaks, there's no argument. There's no debate. God speaks and that settles it. And it surely did for Saul. Submission to the Lord's authority, is at the heart of every conversion. It certainly was for that persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Now let me share something with you. Hopefully it might be helpful just by way of of personal testimony. Let me share this. Never since I was nine years old, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, never since I was nine years old, I've, I said, never have I said regarding some change in my life, regarding some alteration that the people around me were seeing in some previously held notion that I had regarding how things were going to go in my life. They would see a change in me. I was going to be this, and all of a sudden now I'm going to be this. Never did I say to anyone, by way of explanation, I have decided. You see, the last thing I ever consciously decided to do in my life was to give my life to Jesus Christ. And ever since that day, ever since that day, my life has consisted of an ever-lengthening string of you-will statements. Statements that have been communicated to me one by one in sometimes the most unexpected of ways. But they've gone something like this. Mark, 
You as a high school boy will respond to this invitation to do yard work for this white-haired, eccentric, wealthy man. (laughs) This was the man who ultimately would completely pay for my college education. I didn't know him. He was a weird old guy. (laughs) Lived up the road from us in an exclusive community, was wealthy, but he looked like the doctor on Back to the Future. (laughs) And somehow I was invited to work there just to do yard work when I was a high school boy, young high school boy. And the feeling was, Mark, you will respond to this invitation to do yard work for this white-haired, eccentric, wealthy man. Another, Mark, You will accept your high school guidance counselor's advice and refuse the football scholarship offered by Yale University. He told me he didn't think that'd be a good idea for me. I accepted his counsel. Mark, you will drop the idea of attending West Point. Though you have received a congressional recommendation and you have excited yourself with this possibility since your elementary school days. Mark, you will attend Wheaton College. Mark, you will take it upon yourself to walk up to and say hello day after day to the most unattainable girl in your college class, Linda Spencer. Mark, you will change your seminary plans even though you and your new bride have driven several hundred miles on your spring break to get settled in right here at Dallas Seminary. And you will change your plans. This is not the place. Mark, some years later, you will calmly leave the ministry that you are in and you will start something brand new. Something completely different. See, my life's been filled with a series of you will statements. And in none of those can I say, I decided this. I decided that. I figured that out. I made the decision too. That's not the way it's been. Because the last time I decided myself to do anything was to give my life to Jesus Christ. And by the way, let me just say, That life orientation of submission is the very reason I cannot give any definite kind of answer when somebody asks me, when do you plan to retire? (laughs) So now, with all we've said and with all we've seen, we come to today's third and final conclusion. It's this. Saul was perhaps Numa's most impressive work. The whole history of the church has been affected, altered, blessed, shaped by the words of God brought to us through the pen, through the mind, through the heart, stimulated by the Holy Spirit of the one we know as the Apostle Paul. The Spirit transformed the Pharisee Saul into the Apostle Paul. And now all we've seen, all we've said this morning leads to this third key question. What might such a God, what might such a God do with you? With you. He works in your life with power, with grace, according to wisdom, Sometimes with a bit of ingenuity. And always, please, always acknowledge he works in your life with complete authority. 
the great bottom line of today's message we have in today's final thought. Seldom does our God do the obvious. Obvious is what we're good at coming up with. Seldom does our God do the obvious. Sometimes he even does the unthinkable. Like for many people, what he did with Saul. There's probably some Christians that actually died still doubting whether Saul was legit. Sometimes he even does the unthinkable. Always he does, though, the undeniable. When it's happening, when it's from him, there's a, a voice just like the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit also witnesses with our spirit to say, this is of God. This is of God. This is the voice of God saying, you will, you will, you will, as these various situations come along. And we wind up saying, along with the psalmist, the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Enjoy our good God. He didn't stop creating surprising converts with the man called Saul. Some of us in this room were pretty surprising. The people around you, when they find out, oh, she's, she's gotten religion or whatever. She's going to church now. He's, uh, he's uh, living differently, not doing that stuff anymore. Though people say, him? Her? Really? There might be a time or two you've walked into church, even this very room, and seen somebody sitting here, and you'd say, what? <laughs> Our God does that. He loves to do that. And then out of this surprising convert, he brings a solid follower of Jesus Christ. May we all be such. Heavenly Father, now we thank you for helping us to kind of roll away 2,000 years of history and just look back there at what your word recorded for us as though it was today's newspaper talking about yesterday's events. Father, your word is living. It is powerful. And it conveys over all the centuries the, the heart-stirring truths that, that you design it to do. It pierces right into us and makes us think and wonder and ponder and evaluate. Oh, Father, Paul was most uh, unexpected, but we would agree he became most exceptional. May we yield ourselves completely to your authority, to your will, to your ways, that we might be in our own place and time people who represent the truth of God, who stand firm for the person of Jesus Christ, who consciously are in fellowship and in step with the Holy Spirit himself. And as a result, may we increase your joy in us. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.